Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what led to the violent unrest in Kazakhstan? Now, we don't often associate former Soviet states with massive public protests, but twice now in recent months we've seen just that. Last year was Belarus, this year it's Kazakhstan. Thousands of people took to the streets in the country's capital after fuel prices were increased. Soon the unrest spread across the country and the public's anger turned to the political regime in general. In the capital, Almaty, demonstrations became violent and police began to crack down on protesters. This resulted in thousands of arrests and dozens of deaths after President Kasim Jamar Tokayev authorised his forces to kill without warning. The president also called on Russia for military assistance in defusing the situation. So what's really behind the conflict? And what's next for this oil-rich nation? To talk us through it all, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Professor of Politics at DCU, Dunika Obakon. Dunika, you lived in Kazakhstan for a number of years. Can you tell us about the type of country it is and what it's like for ordinary people there? That's right. I lived there for five years in the uh, 2000s and visited all parts. It was then and uh, is now a country in transition. I mean, the question has always been, I guess, to where is it transitioning? It's it's a huge country. I mean, I cannot overstate that. It's the ninth biggest country in the world, 2.7 million square kilometers, stretches from the, the Caspian Sea in the west to, to, to China, essentially in the east. I remember once taking a flight from Almaty, where I was living, to Uralsk. It was a four-hour flight, and I never left Kazakhstan during the entire period. Um, so part of it's actually geographically in Europe, but vast majority is 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 in Asia. It's despite that very sparsely populated population would be more or less the same as the Netherlands at about 19 million. And as your listeners will know, the Netherlands is smaller than Ireland. So it gives you a sense of there's vast open spaces where really there's nobody there. And that's one of the reasons why, as, as, as we might see, it was a popular place for Stalin to dump enemy peoples during Soviet times and, and do a lot of other uh, nefarious uh, activities. It's very multi-ethnic. Uh, it's not a homogeneous state by any means. Indeed, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Kazakhs, ethnic Kazakhs were a minority in Kazakhstan. They only made up 40 percent of the population. It's home to more than 100 nationalities. A uh, large population of Russians, for example, particularly in the north, they make up about 20% of the population. Ukrainians, Germans, Koreans, Uyghurs, you know, there's a whole range of them. The Russian language has traditionally been kind of a, a lingua franca uh, for uh, people. Um, so even though the, the national language is Kazakh, it's the state language, and this will be very familiar to Irish listeners, the state language is not the language that most people speak. Russian is still the language uh, that dominates business and indeed ordinary interactions. Uh, now it depends, it, it, you know, very varied. It depends from city to city and region to region, but that's a general truism. And, and in recent years, the government have tried to, uh, you might say, increase the, the, the place of Kazakh and Kazakh traditions in society. But there is that tension about how to do that without alienating people who already speak Russian. And it's not really a country people would know a lot about. Would you say it's best defined by its relationship with Russia? It's had a long relationship with, with Russia. Um, it, it was a nomadic society before the kind of Russian Empire uh, intervened and there had been periodic uprisings against that uh, dominance. Um, it's been part of the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, and for the last 30 years, an independent state. But they've never, during all those different epochs, enjoyed a peaceful democratic transfer uh, of power. 
and uh, and when they emerged onto the scene of course uh, 30 years ago they were largely unknown i mean there's a lot of places with stan at the end of it uh, it literally means land so it's a bit like finland ireland england and all that there are all these stands out there so they hard, they found it hard to distinguish themselves and therefore they were not pleased and i was there when this happened they were not pleased when uh, borat came on the scene you might remember borat the movie uh, this kind of anti-semitic misogynistic chauvinistic homophobic all those terrible characteristics wrapped into one and um, it was a shock uh, for people living in Kazakhstan that suddenly their their country was, was the, the name of their country was known for the first time, but in such a negative and unrepresentative sense, it's so important to stress that. I did a lot of surveys of opinion while there because, of course, I'm a, I'm a political scientist and I was interested to know what people were thinking. The, the movie was banned, by the way, in Kazakhstan, uh, but a lot of people got to see it. And uh, there was a lot of shock and disbelief and anger that this is how their country was being uh, portrayed. And uh, what's interesting, I think, in terms of the current uh, impasse is the government's response at the time. Rather than seeing this as a, a comedian, Sasha Baron Cohen, randomly picking a country, you know, on the map and then kind of, you know, attributing all these faux attributes uh, in the in the name of comedy, the government's reaction was to suggest that this was a foreign conspiracy to undermine the good name of Kazakhstan, and that's a theme that resonates a little bit uh, today when you see how the government reacted to to what were initially peaceful protests. I mean, you were talking there about Kazakhstan funding it hard to distinguish itself. So if we go back in time, how did it fare as part of the Soviet Union? Well, the Soviet experience is very important. Um, in many respects, Kazakhstan isn't a, a post-Soviet country. It's it's a neo-Soviet, at least in terms of governance. And, and the relationship was colonial in many respects. I mean, power came from Moscow. Uh, Republican leaders, when I say Republic, the Republic of Kazakhstan leaders, they were carefully selected in Moscow. Uh, they were generally drawn from the Kazakh ethnicity, but they were closely monitored. And the deputy secretary was usually a Russian reporting back to Moscow, making sure everything was okay. There was a lot of hardship. Uh, there was a famine in the 1930s when at least a million people died, and some, some suggest up to three million people died. It was, as I said earlier, a dumping ground for enemy or suspect peoples because there were so many vast open spaces. And, and that's one of the reasons why Kazakhstan was so heterogeneous. And indeed, Kazakhs were a minority in their own country by the end of the Soviet Union. It was also a reason why Stalin decided to, to um, use Kazakhstan as the place to have the first nuclear uh, bomb exploded. Uh, their, their own nuclear program started in Kazakhstan and they continued to do all their testing in Kazakhstan throughout the Cold War. And uh, so people suffered in that region and not only. And I think for a lot of Kazakhs, it's, it, it underlines that colonial relationship that, you know, they were used, uh, you know, for the greater Soviet good, but they were the ones who, who suffered. Another thing actually I remember about that institute, and it says a lot about how things have moved on in some ways, is that it was also in the garden. I remember all the all the communist era statues were dumped there, and they were being used by students to 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 um, there were foreign students from Pakistan and India who were using the the statues of Lenin and 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 Marx as wickets for for playing cricket. But it, you know there was there was some also some positive aspects to the Soviet experience. Um, there was you know edu mass education, urbanization, industrialization. The, the Kazakhs were a nomadic people, so a lot of that all changed under under Soviet rule. And then you know as as things kind of came to an end, uh, the Soviet Union came to an end. It wasn't really a case of Kazakhstan leaving the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union left Kazakhstan. 
Um, they were the last country to declare independence, um, you know, uh, and the Russia had already left, Ukraine had already left, Belarus had already left, and the Soviet Union, you know, formally collapses a week later. So independence was, in some respects, uh, an unexpected and largely unwanted gift. Now, retros retrospectively, they've, they've changed the history books to make it seem like there was a manly struggle led by Nursultan Nazarbayev to, to attain freedom. But the reality is, is that Kazakhstan was one of the most Sovietized societies in the Soviet Union. And so what's the current political makeup? What type of government does it have now? It's a dictatorship, um, pure and simple. Uh, real opposition is banned. Um, elections are rigged. There are not mechanisms to determine who will govern. They're simply, you know, absurd theatres uh, where, you know, the government demonstrates its power over its citizenry. The the media is, 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 is suppressed, the independent media. Um, coverage of the Nazarbayev family that's deemed insulting or defamatory or even just invasive is, is a criminal offence, which is why the internet is hugely important. That's the one way that people have, particularly young people, to disseminate their ideas. And it's one of the reasons why during these protests, the internet was shut down for almost a week and people couldn't contact each other or get their stories to the outside outside world, or even just communicate with each other. So you were mentioning uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev there. What's his involvement in the government currently? That's a good, very good question, what it is currently. Um, he, he, is, he, is, he is a former communist boss, of course, who, who, who uh, you know, was the general secretary of the Communist Party in Soviet times. And uh, he developed an elaborate personality cult during the last 30 years. You know, his, his statues proliferated. He's on the stamps, the currency, street names, the airport. Even the capital city was changed to his first name. So the capital city now is formally called Nur Sultan, and his, his first name is Nur Sultan. And then, you know, as he reached the age of 80, he decided to kind of have a transition. I think he was worried that his personality cult might not outlive him. So he picked, uh, you know, someone who was a pliant subordinate uh, for, for many years. And um, in 2019, only, only two, just over two years ago, he um, stepped down formally in favor of his handpicked successor, Tokayev. And um, many people suspected that he was relinquishing responsibility rather than power, that he was, he was there in the background. And he held this kind of position as head of the National Security Council, which was kind of, you know, giving him some formal role. But many people felt that informally he was still calling the shots. And that's one of the reasons why during these demonstrations, a lot of the chants that you were hearing amongst protesters were saying, Shalket, uh, essentially, old man, leave. And therefore, his legacy has been tarnished during the last week, and he was re he was removed from the current president, this transitional president, Akayev. He was removed from that position of uh, National Security Council head. So he hasn't made a formal statement. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but one thing's for sure: he's he, he has endured huge reputational damage during the last week, um, and uh, that was, I think, underlined by the fact that uh, very notably, a statue that was erected to him only five years ago, was pulled down by protesters. And um, before we look further at that, I mean, we've heard an awful lot in recent days about the importance of oil for Kazakhstan. So where does that tie into all of this? Oil is hugely important. It's the basis of wealth in Kazakhstan. They produce, you know, almost two million barrels a day. The Tengiz oil field is the sixth largest oil field in the world. Um, and they share that kind of Caspian Sea oil with a, a number of other dictatorships, Russia, Iran, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan. Um, the fact that they're all dictatorships uh, suggests, of course, something. It also, the fact that it, it has been a curse in a way. There's such a thing as a resource curse that once you're blessed with a natural resource that pays all the bills, it means that you don't really diversify your economy, something also known as, as Dutch disease. But I remember well visiting uh, Aktau, which is a, an oil 
city in, in, in Kazakhstan many years ago and going to the local Catholic church, um, just I was doing a, a round of visits to all the religious institutions. And I noticed that stained glass there had oil rigs in it. I'd never seen oil rigs. You're used to seeing, you know, rather religious icon uh, iconography in, in, in churches, but oil rigs were emblazoned onto the stained glass. That gives you some idea of how uh, important oil is to Kazakhstan. So the protests that we've seen in recent days, what exactly sparked those? And were there any issues simmering in recent years that contributed? There were issues that were simmering, definitely. And it's not the first, it's definitely by far and away the worst, but it's not the first protest that, you know, caused loss of life. There was one a decade ago in Western Kazakhstan, again, in this kind of oil producing part of Kazakhstan near the Caspian, where workers were looking simply for basic rights. And, uh, you know, the government claimed that they'd been infiltrated by bandits and 16 people uh, were killed. Now, Nazarbayev was the president at the time. He fired local officials and, you know, it it, it, it seemed to put an end uh, for a while to, to, to the problems. But there, there was other, you know, things simmering. There was a fire, for example, uh, two years ago. Uh, in which children were killed and and again people came out in protest saying that uh, they needed more help for low-income families now these may sound like economic protests but it's important to mention that you know these you know in a dictatorship there's kind of a social contract in a way an imposed social contract where people give up kind of normal democratic rights in return for for some kind of economic uh, welfare. That was certainly the Soviet model. This is a neo-Soviet model. And if, if the state isn't delivering those economic benefits, then people say all bets are off. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that in communist times, for example, in Poland, it was the price of sausages that triggered widespread protests in 1970 and, 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 and throughout the 1970s. So they may seem like economically inspired protests, but they rapidly can acquire uh, a political character um, and, and as I said, it, it then leads us into the broader picture of why people are unhappy in such an oil-rich country. And that's because uh, of those simmering issues that you kind of uh, hint at. I mean, corruption is endemic. There are huge inequalities in, in, in wealth. The average salary would be around 500 euro a month in, 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 in Kazakhstan, whereas the political elite clustered around the Nazarbayev family and, and his acolytes enjoy fabulous wealth. Uh, it's estimated that more than half the wealth of the country is in the hands of about 150 uh, people. Um, so people have been asking themselves, you know, why in this oil-rich country uh, have uh, are, are they not prospering? And, and then when you have a government that's not transparent, it's not accountable, it's not even representative, people don't have a voice. Um, you know, you, you heard a lot of those voices being heard for the first time during the last two weeks. In my intro, I mentioned that the fuel prices had increased. They have more than doubled, in fact. I mean, what kind of an impact did that have on people's ordinary lives? And, you know, it seems like that must have been the thing that broke the camel's back. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it, it was the trigger. I mean, there was a lot of things there in the background, as I suggested, but this was a trigger. In Western Kazakhstan, where the protests began, about 90% would depend on this liquefied petroleum gas, which is a cheap alternative to gas and petrol. People would use it for their cars in particular. Uh, I, I remember traveling in so many cars with you know, a cylinder of gas in the boot. You couldn't put your bags in the boot because there was always a cylinder of gas there. And um, it's it's uh, there's a lot of informal taxi driving going on. It would be a big earner for people. And they would it, a lot of it would depend on cheap fuel. So when, when the price doubled uh, uh, on New Year's Day, 
it uh, it was as you suggestion the the straw that broke the camel's back and it led to 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 widespread protests and and it's difficult now to gauge the motivations um or the ambitions or indeed even the determination of all the people who turned out in the streets during this time there were certainly different types of groups initially it was peaceful protesters organically spontaneously uh protesting uh, against these price hikes um but then it rapidly um, transformed into something much more uh, lethal and 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 dangerous. And I want to ask you about the reaction from the government to the protest. But first, here's a clip of Irishman John Power, who lives in Kazakhstan, speaking to RTE Radio One's live line about what happened. Uh, how has it affected you, John, in your day to day life? Well, it's changed. Hopefully, you can hear me. It's changed yeah. it completely because we have barely been outside the home in the last four or five days. The first night of the writing, we. Didn't have any news information for a while, but mm-hmm. around 12 o'clock, we were able to get the internet. And our son, he started lo- um, looking at what was happening, and he was worried about how close it'll get to us or will it get here. The biggest difference is, though, that we have no, for most of the time, we've had no access to any form of communication. Okay. No internet, no TV, no radio. It's only yesterday was the first time I was able to call home to let the parents know that I was okay. Are people like yourself, are you likely to be targets for looting? I I can't really say, but I do know I have have friends who were right in the centre. And during the worst of the riots, they were terrified. They were lying on the floor, lights off, hearing the explosions going off around them, lots of noise. I I don't think they're... The locals are the protesters or the writers or whatever mm. are specifically targeting foreigners. But then a large percentage of the population here are Russian Kazakhs, so they basically look like Western Europeans. So there'd be no reason why they'd, they wouldn't um, assume I was just um, a local a wealthy person and a writer here. Dunnick, it seems like there was a lot of confusion and that it was really quite frightening initially. So what was the, the first response of the government to the protests? Well, the first response was to sack the cabinet. Uh, that sounds like a dramatic move, but actually, it's it's not democratically elected and it's kind of a technocratic body. So, uh, but it was they were they were kind of scapegoated. Uh, the price hikes were reversed quite quickly, but it didn't take the steam out of the protests at all. It accelerated, and um, then Nazarbayev was removed, as I said, from that position of chair of the National Security Council. That also didn't assuage or mollify people. Um, and and then the, the government kind of switched tack um, and it it kind of tried to portray it as something much more sinister. And indeed, of course, things did become much more sinister. I mean, the airport was seized. There was the burning of, of, of major buildings, um, you know, particularly those associated with government or the, the, the ruling party. And then Takayev, um, you know, adopted a, a kind of a tough guy image, went on TV saying there would be no talk with terrorists, we must kill them. And the whole narrative switched to internationally sponsored terrorists. And and uh, he made this rather extravagant claim that Almaty, the city I used to live in, which is the largest city in Kazakhstan, 20,000 terrorists, uh, foreign sponsored terrorists had had taken over the city. And that's a, that's a huge amount of people. And the question is, there were so many questions that are, are still emerging. You know, why was the city so unprotected? There didn't seem to be any uh, local security forces there uh, protecting these, uh, you know, institutions. And then, you know, he, he, he you know, try, no evidence was provided, um, you know, about who these foreign sponsored terrorists were, who was sponsoring them, which country was behind it. It was all quite vague and, and uh, implausible. Indeed, he said the other night on television that the these uh, same terrorists had broken into morgues to steal the bodies 
uh, of their dead comrades so that there might not be any evidence um you know to back up these extravagant claims and and indeed one of That's the convenient yeah very convenient and and one one um kyrgyz man neighboring kyrgyzstan one 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 kyrgyz man who was uh, touted on tv as, as as an example of a foreign terrorist turned out to be on identification to be a well-known jazz musician who was on tour um you know so it's it's um, it seems to be a very ad hoc response indeed just kind of following that old Soviet template of conflating protests with terrorism, depicting it as an international terrorist plot has many attractions. I mean, it provides a justification for the crackdown. I mean, they declared a state of emergency, uh, a curfew, as I said, blocked the internet and telephone communications. It also potentially garners sympathy abroad because let's face it, who's on the side of the terrorists. Um, but most importantly, perhaps it provided the necessary pretext to request help from uh, the uh, CSTO, this um, security uh, organization, which is Kremlin led, uh, because if it had been simply a case of, oh, look, my people don't like me, that's not a reason for uh, a military alliance to come to the assistance of a leader. But if it's an external terrorist plot to overthrow the state, that is a legitimate pretext uh, under under Article 4 of the CSTO Treaty, and therefore they could be dispatched for that reason to save Kazakhstan from this uh, external threat. And before um, the president asked for Russian assistance. How did the protests turn violent? I mean, what what, what was the point at which it, that switch flicked? Well, that's that's something that we still don't know uh, authoritatively. All we know is is that there were different parallel things happening at the same time. But who was responsible and what they were looking for, we don't know. The the, the theories are that, as I said, it could have been an intra elite struggle um, between elements, a power struggle within Kazakhstan. And we don't know the identities of those. It could be, as I said, people associated with Nazarbayev. It could be other rivals. But that there was kind of a hijacking of this spontaneous protest by elements is is not really in dispute. But the motives, as I said, and the identity of these individuals is is still not known. And as I said, may not be known for some time, if if ever. Now, I want to ask you about the response of the authorities in Kazakhstan. President Tokayev told them they could fire without warning. Is that an unexpected reaction from him? It is unusual. Um, it was to display his determination. He was emboldened, perhaps, by the fact that he he got rapid approval um, from from the Kremlin for this, you know, um, military support. So that kind of stiffened his resolve and those of his security forces. I mean, the official statistics that have been given by the government say 164 people have been killed, and uh, there's been about 2,000 detainees. My experience would suggest that that's an underestimation. Um, they they rarely give you uh, an inflated view of the numbers killed. Um, so I would I would say we'll hear more and more as people's stories get out. Now that the internet is being restored, people like myself will be able to 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 link up with with friends uh, living still in Kazakhstan and and get their on the ground experiences. But they're they're still just filtering out as we speak. And you've already mentioned that Russia was dragged into this through the Collective Security Treaty Organization. So can you just explain what the CSTO is and what that function is here? Sure. Um, though I, I guess when we say it was dragged in, it, we, 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 it, it, it responded with such speed that um, it showed a certain enthusiasm to get involved. Um, so indeed. willingly dragged in. Yeah, will, willingly <laughs> dragged in, perhaps one person's crisis being another's opportunity, perhaps. Um, uh, I mean, the CSTO is, is, has six members, uh, Russia being, of course, by far and away the most prominent and indeed it's really a Kremlin sponsored security treaty organization. The other members being uh, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, uh, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan itself. 
So it's really kind of Central Asia, Belarus, Armenia, and Russia. And it's Article 4, yeah, it says that they can come to each other's assistance if there's an attack to, to undermine or overthrow the state. It's never been invoked before, or at least it's never been invoked in a way that's involved the dispatching of troops. Kyrgyzstan, for example, uh, reached out in 2010 when it had deadly inter-ethnic conflict there, which led to hundreds of deaths. I was in Kyrgyzstan during that time. Russia didn't come to the assistance of Kyrgyzstan at that time. Uh, similarly, Armenia asked in 2021 for the CSTO to get involved in this dispute with the Azerbaijan, they didn't get involved. So the fact that, you know, they responded affirmatively and so quickly suggests that uh, this was something that was considered to be serious and and indeed in Russia's interest to get involved. Um, I mean, you could say it's, it's something like an autocratic mutual support group. I mean, these, it's composed primarily of, of dictators and, and just in the same way that democracies support each other in times of crisis, dictatorships also uh, try and do the same. And I think its role was primarily psychological rather than military because the troops that were sent rather small in number, about 3,000, and they weren't there to confront protesters. That would have been incendiary. If you had Russian troops firing on Kazakhs, it would have been hugely damaging to the reputation of the regime. So they were there to, to protect installations. But you could argue that the government could do that by themselves. Do they really need to invite a small number of foreign troops to protect installations? I think it was to send a signal that the current government, which, as I said, was one handpicked by Nazarbayev, but it seems to be distancing itself now from Nazarbayev, has open-ended Kremlin support. And that, as I said, strengthens the, the, the resolve of the government. It sends a signal to any internal rivals, whoever they might be, that the government has Russia's support. And it stiffens the resolve of the Kazakh security forces, some of whom were reported to have defected to the protesters during the, the recent uh, um, crisis. So it sounds like relations between Russia and Kazakhstan are normally quite good anyway. I mean, how much of a strategic interest is there for Russia then? Oh, quite a, quite a significant one. I mean, Russia and Kazakhstan share a very long border, um, over 7,000 kilometers long, uh, second longest in the world. And, um, you know, and a very long shared history, if I can use that common euphemism, most of which was Kazakhs under Kremlin rule. Um, so, I mean, the the Kremlin will consider Kazakhstan to be part of its sphere of influence. Kazakhstan had tried to have, up until now, a multi-vector foreign policy, trying to be friends with everybody, including uh, the US and, and the EU. And, and there is that large, if diminishing, ethnic Russian population in the north that I mentioned earlier. So, so there are those interests. But then there are other you know, economic interests, strategic interests. Uh, the Russian space mission, which used to be the Soviet space mission, is based in, in Kazakhstan in Baikonur. The pipelines, of course, that transport uh, Kazakh gas, some of them, of course, go through Russia. Uh, so, so there's been a, a long, um, interesting uh, you know, relationship between Russia and Kazakhstan. You might say, in a way, it's been one of you know, suspicion, but but cooperation. I mean, uh, in a way, for Kazakhs, you know, their independence is defined by how much independence they have from Russia. But at the same time, Russia is their nearest neighbor and will always be so. And Russian, as I said, is the dominant language in Kazakhstan. So there'll always be a strong cultural and geographic relationship. And what has the US response been? I mean, they didn't seem to have been too happy that Russian-led forces were invited in to help that's true. Um, I mean, the US, you know, which was the first country to recognize independent Kazakhstan, by the way, I mean, it, it has very favorable economic ties with Kazakhstan, uh, part of that multi-vector foreign policy that Kazakhstan has tried to implement, as I mentioned. Um, so it's tolerated a lot of, the US has tolerated a lot of misgovernance in Kazakhstan because of those favorable economic ties. Chevron, for example, is Kazakhstan's largest private oil producer and uh, holds important stakes in the two 
uh, biggest oil producing fields. Um, so, you know, the American interest is huge and not only the American interest, I mean, other uh, Western countries have huge interests. Um, the, the, during all these leaks, like the Pandora Papers and others, a lot of information came out about where the Nazarbayev family fortune uh, had been spent. And uh, a huge amount of it uh, was in things like real estate in the US and uh, in uh, Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom. Uh, over half of the uh, 800 million that was calculated, this was only an estimate and not exhaustive, that was spent on real estate purchases in Europe and the US was in the UK. And then you had, of course, Tony Blair, um, who was um, employed for, it, it emerged again from leaks, uh, was employed for about £5 million a year as an advisor uh, and a consultant, essentially, for Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Um, so the money has been spent in, in kind of... Uh, diffusing uh, a lot of you know people in the west who might otherwise be critical of of uh, what goes on in kazakhstan and and then of course there are other regional players again that that china turkey uh, who have an interest in what's going on in in kazakhstan so in the past there's been a lot of jockeying for position in kazakhstan uh, some people have even called it a, a new great game um you know going back to that old competition in central asia from the 19th century and what's happened now, I guess, with, with Russia's involvement is that Russia has asserted the primacy of its own, uh, at least security role uh, in the region. And what do you think will happen now? Do you see this having a lasting impact on Kazakhstan? I think this has been a week like no other. I mean, the sovereignty of Kazakhstan has certainly been undermined and and the legitimacy of the regime has, has been tarnished, uh, perhaps irrevocably. Its reputation, you know, for being a stable oasis in an otherwise volatile region has also been shattered. It's also been a huge psychological blow, I think, for people in Kazakhstan who only in December of uh, 2021 uh, lavishly celebrated their 30th anniversary of independence. Um, you know, to have the, the, you know, within days of that, you know, Russian troops being invited back to shore up the, the, the government in Kazakhstan, it's it's been a, a humiliation for many people. You can only imagine. I mean, we're we're commemorating this month a uh, hundred years since the British troops left Dublin and many other parts of Ireland. Can you imagine if, like, thirty years after that, uh, you know, the, the the government of De Valera had to invite back, um, you know, British troops to to shore up his government because essentially Ireland had fallen apart. Um, it would be a, a huge embarrassment and would be an undermining of sovereignty. So that's how people you know, have taken it, I think, uh, many people certainly have taken it in, in Kazakhstan. And I think that the, the violent crackdown of dissenters doesn't bode well for the future. If, if Tokayev is to endure as a leader, he'll have to carve out some distinctive reforms and he'll need to bring people with him. I mean, the choice is the same as it's always been. I mean, you can reform or repress, but it's very difficult to do both simultaneously. That's, that's where Gorbachev, of course, um, his reforms led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he, he is talking reform, but he's also repressing and which will have the upper hand and whether, you know, the two can actually work in parallel. Well, we'll see. But certainly it's it's been a, a, a seismic event in Kazakhstan's uh, history. I mean, the most important week since they gained independence 30 years ago. Russia really seems very busy lately. So what do you think this means for Russia in Ukraine? And how do you think this could pan out in the long run for Russia? For Ukraine, I don't think it has a lot of implications. I mean, Russia will come away from this with uh, enhanced self-confidence. I mean, its primacy in the region has been reaffirmed. The Takayev regime in Kazakhstan is indebted to it. And, um, you know, there may be favours 
that Russia will want to call in later uh, in return for that support. I mean, what's interesting about Ukraine, I guess, is that, you know, Putin has has stimulated secessionism in, in Ukraine. Of course, Crimea was annexed. There is also a Russian minority in, in Kazakhstan, which, um, you know, Putin hasn't supported to the same degree. And that's largely because, of course, the regime in, in Kazakhstan is more favorable towards Russian interests than, I guess, uh, the one is in Ukraine. Um, but in the long term, um, I think Putin will watch what's happened in Kazakhstan and, and, and uh, learn something from it, and particularly about the issue of succession. I think that, you know, this has been a, a failed uh, attempt to manage transition from one dictator uh, to, to kind of a, a hand-picked uh, lackey. And I think Putin will watch and, and be less inclined to go for a managed transition. He's seen what's happened in Kazakhstan, that if you misjudge succession, you can lose everything, indeed, even your legacy. Um, so perhaps best to, to stay in power, and uh, as has been the case with many dictatorships in the region, and uh, stay in power until the very end. Donica, you're an absolute mine of knowledge on this stuff. Thanks so much for joining us again and explaining what's going on. My pleasure, Michelle. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer, and thanks again to Donica for joining me today. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.